Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of the Transcript Podcast. We've got a special episode today, a special guest joining us, Jesse Felder, who's a well-known macro analyst and author of the Felder Report. You've also got me, Scott Krisloff, editor of the Transcript, and Eric Mokaya, who's our lead author. We sent out a new issue of the newsletter yesterday, and what we saw was that the Fed is still trying to break the back of inflation, but having a hard time doing so. And... The main reason that it's having a hard time doing that is just because the economy is actually holding up pretty well. The consumer remains resilient, continues to spend, and that is keeping inflationary pressure on the economy. So the Fed is going to try to, honestly, it seems like they're trying to engineer a recession at this point, but more pain may be coming according to Jamie Dimon. Jesse, any thoughts on anything you're seeing these days? I think there's not been enough talk about how far behind the curve the Fed is. And I think you guys have highlighted this on Twitter, that historically the Fed funds rate needs to go positive in real terms before inflation can really be addressed. And with headline inflation still running north of 8% and Fed funds sitting just above three, there's still a massive gap there. The Fed funds rate is still deeply negative. And so I, I think that monetary policy is still technically very dovish, and that might be the main problem. Yeah. For me, from the bank earnings last week, the key takeaway, of course, is that whatever the Fed is trying to do, the economy is not feeling it yet, because I think most banks are just saying that the consumer uh, continues to spend really a lot. I don't know if that is in trying to keep up with the rising inflation rate. But as you say, like Scott, I think the te key takeaways from Bank of America CEO says consumer spending, which is strong, is actually the Fed's biggest challenge. And some takeaways maybe also from the FOMC last week, the minutes, they said uh, they need unemployment rates to rise, even as they try to contain inflation. So I don't know what your takeaways are from that, because usually a low unemployment rate is good, but it seems like the Fed is saying, okay, this is actually a problem at this point in time. Yeah, I think the Fed is actively telling us very explicitly that they're trying to pull demand back and that they're okay with a rising unemployment rate. And both of those things sound a lot to me like a recession. And so it's very interesting. Jesse, you make a really good point that they're actually still devilishly positioned because of where interest rates are relative to inflation. My question, Jesse, actually, do you think that they'll ever get to a really hawkish stance? Like, where do you think the balance will end up being with inflation and interest rates, if you had to guess? Or what's your working assumption right now? I think that probably what markets and most investors are missing today is inflation is a choice. Inflation is a policy. When debt levels get to over 100% of GDP, which we're at today, 120 plus, I think, here in the U.S., it's just government debt. The obvious way to deal with that is inflation. <clears throat> and I think that in the midst of, in the early days of the pandemic, when the Fed explicitly changed its inflation targeting framework from basically a 2% ceiling to a 2% average, I think that was a very clear message to the world that we want inflation. And so I think it's clear that the Fed wants inflation, needs inflation. The federal government absolutely needs inflation to deal with the amount of debt that's out there, but they don't want it to run out of control. And so Jay Powell has to pretend to be the second coming of Paul Volcker, even though that's impossible. Debt to GDP under Paul Volcker was 30%. It's four times higher today. So he literally can't raise rates to 20% like Volcker did without bankrupting the government, without creating a debt spiral. But he has to pretend 
that the Fed is going to do this in order to prevent inflation from really going out of control. That's why they're watching inflation expectations and these things so carefully, because if you do get an inflationary mindset, you could start getting what some Austrian economists have called a crack up boom, which is people start thinking, wait a second, inflation's never coming back down again. I need to start buying, hoarding things. And you get this inflationary mindset, which creates an even bigger inflation problem. So I think that the Fed's trying to prevent that, but they're not willing to do whatever it takes to bring inflation back down below two. Yeah, it's interesting. As you're talking, I'm thinking about the gap between two things. One, the lag between the effect of monetary policy and the real economy. And we're seeing right now the Fed with rhetoric that's extremely hawkish and policy that's trending towards hawkishness. 75 basis point raises increases are pretty extreme. And the economy is not like yet keeping up with that. So you would expect the economy and monetary policy to start to come back into alignment in a way that would be negative for the economy. But then there's another layer on top of this that you're bringing up, which I'm interested in teasing out more, which is the extent to which the rhetoric is more hawkish than the actual policy, and the rhetoric is more hawkish than they intend the policy to ever get because the Fed may be backed in the corner. What's your own estimation of the rhetoric versus the policy and when the rhetoric can start to be dovish again or can it? Yeah, we've already heard it, right? Jay Powell's had to walk back some of the things he said at recent Fed meetings. I think, look, if Jay Powell were the second coming of Paul Volcker, he would say, inflation's here, Fed funds need to be here. You look at things like the Taylor rule says Fed funds should be 9% or something insane. But even the Fed has acknowledged, right? We think Fed policy should be about 4.5% is where we're trying to get to. Why didn't they just put it there? Why didn't they just go, okay, we've been at zero. Why don't we just go to 4.5% if that's where policy should be? Because it would crash the markets and create all kinds of problems and potentially debt problems, right? We're seeing serious liquidity problems in the treasury market already. Fed funds is 3% and they've only started quantitative tightening. And so there's all these reasons why they can't implement the policy. They really feel like they probably should. And so I think that's why they haven't been as hawkish as they need to be. And it's also why we hear talk about, okay, at some point, we're going to need to slow the pace of rate hikes. And at some point, it's going to be appropriate to pause and see how they affect the economy. And because pausing at four and a half, right? When and see headline CPI is still seven, six and a half, and you still don't have a real Fed funds rate. So I still see that as dovish personally. Yeah. A quick question, Scott. In the Fed's push towards dealing with inflation, I think some of the comments that you heard from JP Morgan's CEO, Jamie Dimon, was about that this is very serious in the sense of like in the bid to deal with the inflation, the Fed is actually going to create a recession. And the second thing we said is that there's most downside to go for equity markets. And I think Scott, you've been clear on this and, and from reading Jesse also, I've seen the same. So from where we are now, is that what's the likelihood actually we are in a recession and what's the likelihood that the markets actually have more downsides to go from where we are? I think this is what I was talking about in terms of the lag between the economy and monetary policy is that we're not in a recession yet, but we're very clearly on the way to a recession based on where monetary policy is and the effect that the Fed is trying to have on the economy. They are trying to slow it and they are okay with the rising unemployment rate. They are okay with falling equity prices. And so 
the Fed, I believe, is ultimately going to get their way. They usually do. And so you have to expect that a recession is likely to come. There are two macro indicators that I watched really closely. The first one is insider buying and selling. I use it as a micro analysis kind of a thing where I'm looking for insiders that have a good track record of buying their own stock. And that's for me as a value investor helps confirm my idea of a value when I find what I think is a cheap stock. But when you aggregate it, it can be very valuable too. Nijad Sehun at University of Michigan has done a, a wonderful amount of quantitative analysis on the insider trading. And it's fascinating to see in aggregate, when you just look at executives and directors, not 10% owners, but really people who are closely involved with the company, and you just look at their insider buying and selling, when you see the sell to buy ratio go very high. That's a really good indicator of not just 12 returns in the stock market 12 months out, but also what the economy does 12 months later. And I've actually taken this and taken the insider sell to buy ratio and overlaid it with a 12 month lag over ISM. And you can see insider activity is a very good predictor of economic activity as indicated by the ISM and things like that. So we saw insider selling last year, just literally off the charts. It went over 30 times on a 12 month average basis, which is a massive amount of insider selling. I don't think we've ever seen that much before. That suggests that over a 12 to 24 month period, we're going to see the economic slowing. And that suggests probably that the peak in that ratio suggests that the bottom for the economic kind of recession should be around the third quarter of next year. At the same time, when you put together the rate of change, 12-month rate of change in the dollar, interest rates, and oil prices, when all three of those things are surging, it almost always has a really good two-year lead over the earnings growth, S&P 500 earnings growth. And so that has been surging, obviously, right? And we've seen oil price go from negative to over $100 a barrel. We've seen interest rates go from 50 basis points on the 10-year to four up tenfold, essentially, on the 10-year treasury yield. And then the dollar obviously has been super strong. So the three of those things are a really good two-year lead on, on S&P 500 earnings. That also suggests that earning, we're going to have, see a pretty deep earnings recession next year. That's not yet priced into the stock market. So that's something to be concerned with as well. So I do think it's clear we're probably headed to recession and it's going to impact earnings in a significant way. Uh, and I think to your point earlier, Jesse, about where interest rates probably should be in order to be a real positive interest rate. If you're thinking about it, just the cost of capital that's implied, the cost of equity that is implied on those interest rates, mortgages at 7% mortgage rate today, you would expect the S&P 500 earnings yield to at least be there, if not higher than the mortgage rate. And right now at peak earnings, we're at like about 18 times peak earnings, which has, it's just not congruent with what the cost of capital needs to be and where it's going. And especially as earnings come down, likely in a recession, there's real significant potential downside for equity prices here that's still not priced into the market. And that has its own follow-on effects, basically on inflation and financial stability and all of these things and, and creating more recession. So that's why we titled the newsletter this week, Stormy Weather, because it looks like we're headed for that. Yeah. And I think the only point that I would add to that is that you talk about 18 times peak earnings, but I think you also need to look at what are the profit margins underlying those earnings. Margins are literally off the chart, record profit margins. A lot of that has come from the 
unprecedented fiscal stimulus in the last couple of years has boosted profit margins. This has been able to raise prices faster than wages. That's probably reversing now where wage growth is finally catching up and their ability to raise prices is starting to hit a wall. And so that that is probably what's going to make for that earnings recession. I'd also just point out too that while the macro and the fundamentals still look very bearish for the next 12 months or so, tactically, over the last couple of weeks, there have been a lot of signs that stocks are oversold, sentiment has become, become too bearish, and that momentum has started to wane in terms of stock prices and things. I think the difficult part for in actually implementing these types of ideas is that when the tactical suggests it's probably time to be bullish, but the macro fundamentals are saying things are still really bearish, it creates a pretty clouded picture. Maybe another observation from this week also is about the consumer deposits declining. I think it's quite significant that for a long while, one of the things that has been driving the spending is, of course, that consumers have a lot of cash in their accounts. But then uh, some of the banks that reported last week are saying like consumers' uh, deposits are actually declining. So I think that it was PNC that talked about a 2% decline. It's minimal, but it's significant that uh, instead of going up like it has the past couple of quarters. Now it's actually declining. One of the forecasts that I saw is that they may run out of this, especially what they've put up these past two years. They may run out of it by next year, given the high inflation rates that you're having also. I don't know if you have any comments on that and also on the fact that there are pockets of the market now that we're also seeing signs of distress. There are a couple of quotes as well on the same, especially the UK markets in the past one month or so. Signs of distress in the market. And I think one of the uh, executives also talked about banks finding it hard to intermediate in particular areas of the market when the Fed now has had to step in a little to do a bit of the buying again. Do you have any... Uh, thoughts on these areas or something? Absolutely. I think in terms of the uh, the consumer, I mean, they we mailed checks out and we saw the cash balances go up dramatically. But also I think what was potentially an underrated part of that was a lot of it was used to pay down debt, pay down credit cards and these types of things. And so we see those cash balances going down. But then as you guys have pointed out, a lot of the banks are saying that uh, consumers still healthy in terms of their cash balances, but in terms of also the credit available to them on credit cards and things is still significant. And so that you're really not seeing that crimping uh, on the consumer side, that would be a, a clearer sign that you're heading into recession. And it's also troubling to the Fed, right? That there's still plenty of spending power there at the consumer level at the same time that wages are rising dramatically. So yeah, it's an interesting situation in terms of that consumer health. Scott, any thoughts? Yeah, I think there were elements in terms of the consumer health that we picked up as well about the bifurcation or difference between the higher income consumer and the lower income consumer. And I think that on that deposit side, the access deposits where, especially for the lower income consumer, savings would be predominantly in some sort of deposit account rather than likely in capital markets and equities, things like that. It's just another indication that as the tide kind of pulls back in the economy, the first area of the economy that starts to get hit is the lower income consumer. And so I think not only the fact that deposits are falling, but also the fact that JP Morgan pinned when it would expect the excess deposits to start to run out in terms of mid next year. That's a really important data point, I think, to be looking for because that would probably coincide with the peak of the recession would be like mid next year you can start to think about it so all important data points i think from that perspective 
Yeah. And maybe quick thoughts also on Europe's energy crisis and the commodity cycles. I think just you reached something about the commodity super cycle that you're expecting. I'm based in Europe, so I can already see in the energy bills how they're skyrocketing. I think the UK, I saw a quote where one of the companies was trying to set up a hotel and they got a contract. The energy bill is 10x up from around 800,000 pounds. I think the energy stress in Europe is quite significant. And one of the quotes we picked up is some companies are actually considering shifting the operations base from Europe to the US to take advantage of the lower energy costs over there. Any thoughts on this and how perhaps the current background environment plays into the commodity super cycle? I think it's a tragic situation in Europe, and I have a great deal of sympathy for the strains that people are going under there. But just from a pure investment standpoint, I do think we're only in the very early innings of a larger commodity super cycle. I think that when you look at the valuation of commodities relative to financial assets, relative to stocks, bonds, these types of things, commodities are still dramatically undervalued. And at the same time, we've had this, if you just look at the capital cycle, we've had in the last five, seven, 10 years, massive investment into technology and these types of things. And that's continuing, right? We're seeing huge investment in the semiconductor industry right now in China and in the United States, and even more broadly in the cloud and these types of things. At the same time, since the oil price crashed in 2014, we've seen a huge drop-off in capital investment in commodities. And basically returns follow capital. So when you see a lot of capital invested in the sector, returns necessarily go down for years afterwards. I think that's probably going to be the case for technology broadly. And I think because of the massive underinvestment in commodities in the last five to seven years, there's going to be supply constraints that last a long period of time. I think in a lot of ways, what we're looking at right now in terms of where the Fed is, where inflation is, where commodity is, it's very similar to the early to mid 70s. I think that's in terms of where we are in the commodity cycle. We're in early innings in a larger commodity boom. Technically, that post that I put up too, you see the <clears throat> Bloomberg spot commodities index just broke out to a new high this year. That just as a technical signal, long-term signal has been a very good indicator that we've been in a long-term range, maybe 10 years for commodities. When you break out of that range to the upside, it's just a very clear technical signal. Something changed. And I think that's a clear technical sign too, that prices are entering a new long-term uptrend. I think one thought based on what you were saying, Eric, about companies looking at coming to the US to produce based on the energy problems in Europe. I think that actually speaks to the magnitude of the energy crisis in Europe that people are thinking in that way, because actually with the dollar being strong and the euro and the pound being weak, you would actually expect the dynamic to be happening in the exact opposite way. You would expect for the currency to be benefiting industrial producers in foreign territories. And so that actually speaks to like the real dislocation that's been caused by Russia's action in Ukraine and the access to energy in Europe that really could have a multi-year uh, or longer impact on the European economy if there aren't other forms of energy that are secured or other sources or something changes, something flips, right? Like, I think we've been really a bit bearish on this call today. Obviously, there are several things that could flip. War in Ukraine and Russia could flip. 
and there could be somehow out of that more access to energy for the world than Europe. And then Fed psychology, especially if we think that it's rhetoric that's pushing this and being backed into a corner, at some point, I'd expect the Fed to still not be able to handle the pain of lower equity prices and recessions. So they may flip more easily. But those are the sorts of things that I'm really looking for as catalysts that would swing us back in a positive direction. Short of that, it looks like we're in for a bumpy ride here. And looking at us, and maybe speaking as someone based in Europe, what I can tell is that the, the energy crisis is really real and people are feeling it. People are very scared, especially on how energy bills are going to be this winter. The people who are benefiting right now are those who had a bit of fixed uh, contracts with the energy companies. But if you had a, a flexible one, this is going to be a tough one. That's fast. And then second, what you're seeing, the new government, especially in Sweden, is also thinking of investing heavily in nuclear power. Any commodities that feed into nuclear energy and all alternative sources of energy, I think that's an area that most of the governments around Europe are looking very keenly for the next five to 10 years. And some of these projects are actually long term. So when they say they really want to invest in this, it means that for the next five to 10 years, this is where you're going to see a lot of the capital flowing. Just as Jesse said, I've been under investing. I think this is a couple of quotes we've been picking the last four or five weeks that a lot of CEOs in the energy sector are saying we've heavily underinvested in energy and it's time that we scale up that investment. So you're going to see a lot of capital flowing from government and from the private sector flowing towards these areas. I think that would be maybe a good place to close. Any closing thoughts from Jesse Scott's? I think it's bearish for what worked well over the last 10 years is it's bearish for, but I think it's extremely bullish. And this is how bull markets work, is that the leaders coming in a new bull market are usually not the same companies that led in the previous bull market. And so I think it's extremely bullish. And the only other point that I would make is that a lot of what we're talking about is dancing around this the subject of deglobalization. I think when you look at what was really made the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years possible, it was falling inflation and falling cost of capital for businesses and all these kinds of things. And a lot of that was made part made possible by falling energy prices and in real terms, improving demographics and globalization. And I think it's very clear that globalization has shifted in a serious way that is is no longer disinflationary. And also that demographics are shifting in a way with the aging of societies. A Great Demographic Reversal is a wonderful book by Goodhart and Pradhan that I think is a must read for investors today. It talks about how these huge macro shifts are underway from a disinflationary to an inflationary regime. And so I think it is, yes, it's bearish for maybe the things that, like I said, worked well the last 10 years. It's extremely bullish for a new way of looking at markets and looking at things that do well in an inflationary environment. Okay, let's close. Closing thoughts? I think that was a great place to close. All right. Thank you so much, Jesse, for joining us this week. We hope to have you again sometime soon to discuss more macro. And Scott, as always, thank you for being here with us. You can always follow Jesse on Twitter. He's very active there. And also you can check out his weekly newsletter. Is it weekly or... Yeah, it's pretty much like a blog post on Wednesday and I send out a free email where I highlight some of the things I'm reading. And I just want to say too, this has been a blast, but I really appreciate what you guys do and putting together, just synthesizing a wonderful amount of data. That's basically what I spend most of my time doing and you guys save me a lot of time. So I appreciate reading the transcript. So we are your outsourced analysts in short. Absolutely. Yes. Take full advantage.
All right. Thank you so much. And uh, I should say on Wednesday, we have a, a Twitter spaces and we'll be discussing bank earnings. So key takeaways from bank earnings, score two. And I will be joined by Mark Ruby uh, from Net Interest, another uh, really great analyst. Watch out and put a link in the podcast today so that you can be able to join on Wednesday after markets close. So thank you for, so much for this week. I'll see you again next week.